He's a gutsy guy. He's fearless. He's familiar with guns. He he knows how to navigate. It doesn't take long for some guys to approach him to say, hey, we could use somebody like you on these boats we have that are going to sail up between Cuba and Haiti to go to Jamaica to bring back a product that could be really worth your while. And he starts putting it because now there's no right or wrong. Yeah, so um, because I had been so active in the teachers' union, you know, once I got out of the, you know, of course, I remember I got out of the army before I started teaching. So when I got out of the army, uh, I had learned from that experience that you, it's important to keep your hands engaged in what's going on around you and the, and the, you know, the body politic. Because politics affects our lives in in ways we don't expect because it's school boards, town boards, you know, lots of different forums that affect policies that can affect where you work or what you do. So I had decided um, once I started teaching to get involved in the teachers union. So being single uh, and the union president was single, uh, he, you know, put me to work right away, um, you know, passing out flyers. And also with a, it was a big school district. So I wrote for the union newspaper, but anyway, so the fourth year, my the beginning of my fourth year at, uh, the wonderful administrator superintendent we had had, um, they had gotten rid of him. The school board took a strong turn to the right, and they decided with this superintendent they brought in from Indiana, this Dr. Bernard Hatch, that they were going to, um, he, he was known for like really knowing how to disrupt a teacher's union, how to break the backbone of a teacher's union. Right. Um, so that, just a little bit of a background for y'all. Um, welcome back, first of all, to another episode of Creative Contact. Thank you for tuning in. This is part three of uh, The Adventure with My Pops. Um, that was a little brief recap. If you want more of that story, there are two episodes. Uh, go find them, bitches. Check them out. You'll get the, you'll get the growing up part one, uh, Adventures into Teaching part two, and then we're going to finish it off the teaching and get into um, the, the big life adventure, uh, at least the first part of it, because um, we got plenty more parts to go you know until 91 when this guy came around so um thank you guys for tuning in and I, i've been getting a lot of good responses from you guys about these episodes with my pop so um you know you can tell the man's a storyteller so i'm glad uh he's willing to sit down with me again so pop speaking of which so you're involved in the unit especially for the listeners you know all three of them um that are avid listeners of the show that have been keeping up let's say they know about the strike and everything they know that you didn't get tenure um let's 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 start off with the strike and then um kind of how it affects you and after you leave because you were planning on leaving and kind of take it from there 
So uh, I, you know, I did get tenure. I mean, they oh, had, right, right, right. Yeah. So um, they tried to deny me tenure, but it didn't work. So now the next fall is when um, I am asked. Uh, the in the in the old days, so you know, in the in the district where I retired from, we have it was more of a it was a win win approach to teacher negotiations with the district. Uh, it was more of a consensus. Back in the in the seventies, it was more of the old style where uh, the union representatives had a lawyer and the district had a lawyer, and the lawyers went into the room and banged it out, and then they had to go back and forth. It was not a consensus type of arrangement at all. So when it looked like there was going to be no settlement it, uh, uh, that was going to happen, uh, there were. The school district was given, uh, they could select one person to sit in from their side who was not on the negotiating team, and the union could have one person sit in from their side who was not on the negotiating team. All the union leadership was involved on the negotiating team. Well, the union selected me to be our observer, and the district selected my principal, Bob Schaefer, to be the observer. So we're the only two people within this big community that are sitting in on the negotiations. It becomes pretty obvious to me that it seems to me like the teachers are willing to compromise and to, you know, they're being conciliatory and willing to, you know, give and take, but everything they put up just gets turned down, turned down. So it, it gets to the point where it looks like, boy, this is this is not going to end happily. So anyway, when it looks like we are going to be forced into striking, uh, I'm asked to be the chairperson of the strike committee. So because the, the, all the union, rep, the union reps, they're all in the negotiating mm. sessions. So now when the strike starts, I'm responsible for all the activities and actions that are going to take place during the strike. And just to keep it brief, one of the really neat things that I, I learned was that you know, when before a, you, uh, a union goes into a strike, you really have to educate your members about why you're doing what you're yeah. doing and why they're out there. And, and, you know, it was, you know, a lot of times we'd have these meetings. This is a big school district, 630 teachers. And some of the, you know, the, the men who, you know, these kind of macho guys, you know, sometimes the coaches are just these macho men. They were always, you know, talking really tough. But then when it actually came down to the crunch, when we were actually going to have to start putting our bodies out on the line, some of these guys, they caved. But the, I was just amazed at the the like the kindergarten first second third grade teachers <laughs> you know, those are the like toughest people nobody was pushing them around yeah. i mean these you got to deal with if you got to deal with kindergartners all day <laughs> yeah. those are some tough people man the you know their jobs were being threatened you know yeah. they they weren't going to take that lightly at all and those a lot of them were older t teachers you know they were out there with their picket signs because we went into you know you go into this work to rural where nobody's allowed to go in early and everybody walks out at the same time anyway when the strike started when it actually began uh we forced the the district because the the community was very supportive and so we actually forced the the, the school board in the district to come to the table and the strike, you know, ended in five days. But that's tight. Yeah, so that that was a pretty interesting experience. And then, of course, then that's um, once you got the win, you're like, I'm out of here. The summer, I was I was gone. You know, I was um, I 
of course, I, I, I've never been, you know, a materialist. So the four years that I lived in this little apartment when I taught in Williamsville, I had a stereo, a, you know, a kitchen table. I think I might have had a couple chairs in my living room and I never bought a bed. I just slept on my army sleeping bag with an alarm clock and a lamp on the floor. So That's it didn't, my stop. Yeah, I see yeah. where I get it from. <laughs> didn't take me long to move out. <laughs> well, I guess I guess I'm ready to move today. Um, how many Eagles records did you have? <laughs> well, actually, I you know when I think back in those days, I you know Led Zeppelin. Oh, I had no. you know Led Zeppelin albums. Of course, I always loved the two. My two favorite bands were the Doors and Santana. Oh wow, you the, were Santana back then. Oh yeah. How crazy is that man is still putting out records. Yeah, it is amazing. It's he. He's like he doesn't age or. He drank some of that Tuck Everlasting juice or something. It's Benjamin Button. It's crazy. You had his records, and he's still, this past year, I'm not sure if you know much about pop culture music stuff, but um, you actually know more than I do these days, but uh, one of the biggest records was this DJ Khaled song that sampled Santana, mm-hmm. and it was like this biggest match of the summer. Huh. So Santana's still killing it yeah. from, from the old days. Okay, so you've got your Santana records, you've got your kitchen table, you said, this is my last year here. Um, and was it because you were just ready for a change? Are you thinking you're going to switch to go teaching district? Or are you already have in your mind, I'm going to be a writer. It's time for me to do this thing. Uh, the writing piece isn't solidified yet. At that point, I'm still thinking about, I know that I'm, it's, I'm a teacher at heart. I know that's my chosen profession. Right. But obviously, being a suburban... Oh, so that's... I forgot that's... Okay, touch on that. I forgot that's... So it stems more from the setting and the environment. I know I'm in the right profession. I just feel like I'm in the wrong place. Gotcha. I remember you too. Yeah. So if if I'm not a suburban city guy... Maybe I'd be more comfortable in a rural area. Mm. So that's when I decide I'm going to go up to Maine and I'm going to try to get a teaching job in Maine. Okay. So you'd emailed a couple people. Uh, Yeah. (laughs) I don't have a clue where I'm going. I just know I'm going to go to Maine somewhere. And why Maine? Just because it feels rural? Well, because I wanted to live someplace where there was like woods and mountains and water. And I think Maine was in my head as the place to go. That's interesting. So, so just out of a hat, you said Maine. Maine, yeah. It's woodsy. And so you hop in your my van. van. But now in the meantime, I think I had mentioned in the last episode that I had been starting to do this outdoor ed yeah. stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. And I had met this really neat man named Herm Weifscotten, mm. who was an outdoor educator, uh, field biologist, who ran a lot of seminars for teachers in New York State through the DEC. And he was, you could tell he was really comfortable around teachers. He was funny, but a real outdoorsman. And so I really uh, made it a point whenever I would go to these weekend conferences to, you know, get up close to him and talk to him and take his workshops Mm -hmm. and stuff. So there was an, he was offering a week long, five day, uh, six day teacher outdoor education workshop at the Rogers Center where he was based in Sherburn, New York in August. Ah. So now this is ju- end of June, 76. The workshop is going to be in August. So now I go back to your grandmom and granddad's, grandma and grandpa Cork's uh, in Liverpool 
And while I'm there, now, you know, the end of the school year is late June, so I've pretty much got July. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, well now what am I going to do? So then I start thinking, it's been a long time since I've actually been down to see your blood grandparents, oh. my actual mom and dad. Years at this point? Yeah. Oh, so wow. remember my dad, your grandfather brought me up to Ann and Ken's when I was 17. Yeah. And I never really spent much time with them from the time oh, wow. they, you know, so I finished high school, community college, Fredonia, being drafted two years, and four years of teaching. Wow, so it's almost a decade. Yeah, through all that, I spent had really seen my real mom and dad very little. Oh, so you're like, this might be a good opportunity. So to go. I thought, what a great opportunity. I've got my van. Yeah. I got the a canoe month. on the roof. I got a month. Why not? Dry? And I'm off the clock. You know, I've got my savings that I had stashed from my four years of teaching, and I don't have to be at the Rogers Center until sometime in August. So why not go down to Florida and visit with my real mom and dad? Oh, cool. Your your real, you know, your blood yeah. grandparents. So that's what I do. I drive down to Florida. Oh, sweet. And um, so I get there, and I'm I'm not there too many days where I'm. Oh, and then I'm thinking now because you're you know your Cuban grandmom. Now I realize that the other part of the family that I haven't seen since I was a little boy, the Cuban was the Cuban side of the family. You know, my mother's side of the family. So I asked my mom. You know, you want to go to Miami? You want to, you know, everybody's got a cousin in Miami. <laughs> you want to go to Miami and... See Uncle Tio? Yeah, you know, and, you know, see the family. And my mom says, sure. So my sister Tia, your aunt, you know, your Tia Tia, and your grandmother and I, we get in your grandmother's car. She had a little, oh gosh, your, your, your grandfather took good care. It was a beautiful little car that she had. Anyway, so we drive to Miami. And now we're going to stay at my older sister's house, your Tia Cookie's house. She lives in Hialeah. And they live right next door to Cousin George and Maria, the other part of the Cuban family. So I think we were there a night. And now I'm kind of starting, mm, boy, you know, I'm now what? You know, because we're in this Hialeah neighborhood. You're back into the suburban yeah. city. Field. And I start thinking, you know, what, you know I'm going to, of course, you know, being a little bit of the bad boy, I'm thinking, you know, if I slip away in the car, you know, I can maybe, you know, catch a little buzz or something, you know. So Just I to make this a little more, <laughs> a little more enjoyable. <laughs> I gotta do something. So then I think, oh, I'm gonna go. I'll go back to the neighborhood. See critter. To where I where I where I grew up till seventh grade. I'll go back and see if my, of course, Dicky Lambert. That's all I know him is Dicky Lambert, my childhood buddy friend. Who I ha who I hadn't really seen since seventh grade. Hmm. You guys keep in touch at all? Or you hadn't. Even no, no, wow. haven't. No. When we first moved out of Miami, he came up. I think that first summer, uh, we went down and got him and brought him up, and he went on a little camping trip with us. And I think maybe uh, I went down with my dad a couple times to Miami mm. and visited. But it wasn't but much. It wasn't much. So basically, from the time I was seventh grade, I think he was—he might have been two years younger than me. So um, basically, from the time I'm what twelve, I don't—I don't see this guy again. Oh wow! Eleven or twelve. But I'm thinking, gee, I wonder if he still lives in the old neighborhood. What the hell, you know? So I drive over there. And I go to the neighborhood. Of course, our house is gone because the interstate came through 
right? And that's why we moved out of Miami because the interstate. Mm -hmm. So where Dickie's house is, when you in his front yard, there are only like three houses to the, the left of his front yard, and there's Interstate 95. Damn. Woof, right through the neighborhood. So I go back, I go over, and you know, I park and I go in, and, and it's probably, you know, it's getting to be late afternoon, and I knock on the door, and this very attractive young woman comes to the door. And she looks at me, and of course, you know, I've got my hair and the beard. It hasn't gotten really long it hasn't yet, got but, you know, story, never, you know, it's not. Stage, but, you know, I'm, I, I probably still look like a sixth grade teacher. Yeah. And she's, you know, like, who are you? And, you know, when I say, well, I'm Rick Rogers, and she, oh, it was so funny. She said, Rick Rogers, I was just thinking about you the other day, and I couldn't remember your name. <laughs> I said, oh, well, thanks. <laughs> so she says, oh, well, come in. So she invites me in, and... Right away, when we're, we walk into... Now, I spent a lot of time in this house. Growing you know, I'm growing up. I mean, we spent a lot of sleepovers, a lot of time in, in this house, out catching lizards. And, and I'm thinking, now, who the hell is this? But then I remember, ah, Dickie had two sisters. Uh. Brenda, who was just a couple years younger than Dickie, and then a three-year-old. Wow. Whose name was Debbie. So now I'm looking at this 19-year-old, 20-year-old blonde. She looks a lot different. A lot <laughs> different. And I'm oh, that's this is Debbie. Wow. 16 years later. So she was still living at home? Uh, yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, well, she was there at the time, I guess. That's crazy. And, of course, the mom and dad, they're, they're not home. They're out somewhere. So anyway, so, you know, I go in and I can see the, um, there's the typical bull, I have your mom got after me for swearing. Yeah. I mean, there's <laughs> the photo. <laughs> there's the photograph. The basic training photograph that every parent gets when their boy, you know, goes Is into the Marines. The with the dog no, just sitting there, you know, that stupid grin. The typical basic yeah. training photograph. And there's one on the television or something. So then I start asking her about her brother, and then she starts telling me. Well, first of all, he, he doesn't go by Dicky anymore. His name is Critter, mm. and he doesn't doesn't live here anymore. He's you know basically he's a biker. He lives up outside of Gainesville, uh, Florida, about 16 miles out of Gainesville. He lives out on this piece of property. They call it Hog Heaven. He lives out there with another couple bikers. One of them's name's Wild Bear, and she starts telling me that basically her brother, is highly decorated combat Vietnam veteran, when he's like 20. 21. Yeah, at this point, if he's two years younger than you, and you're like 26 at this point, he's like 24, yeah. 25, so he's yeah. still, that's crazy, he's yeah. younger than me at this point, and he's already a decorated veteran. Yeah. I'm still trying to get my, <laughs> my website built. <laughs> this so, man's taking lives. Yeah. That's insane. So, so she tells me that, uh, you know, when he, he, um, he became. He was really into Harley Davidsons when he was in Vietnam. Their their mother had sent him some manuals, so he really just kind of spent his spare time digesting manuals. Well, he gets severely wounded in a in a in a firefight, so that he can't um, he can't pull his finger trigger finger. So they want to put him behind a desk, and he's he's not having any of that. He yeah. just gets out. Well, then he gets involved in the anti-war movement because he's, he was a pretty serious combat veteran who 
once you know the in the peace community and the and the anti you know the veterans against the war movement he they kind of you know he kind of gets starts getting involved in that mm. and starts kind of like a lot of vets start realizing that they've been bushwhacked yeah and they've done all this intense stuff for nothing does she kind of is she does she tell you all this kind of stuff that he's done or do you know no, no she's she... just telling me that he was uh it had a serious effect uh-huh. on him uh, and one point, you know, he tried to, uh, he tried to, uh, he, he drew disability when he first got out mm-hmm. and he, he got really got into Harley's. Uh, he tried to open up a, a little a bike shop, uh, cause guys were coming to him cause he was so good yeah. with the, you know, the Harley Davidsons, but you know, being veterans, they were all into smoking pot. And so the police decided to bust uh. his shop and they come in and they go in and they not just bust the you know, the, the bikers that are hanging out, but they ransack the shop. Oh, damn. But then when it goes, when he has to go to court and the judge gets, you know, the folder on Dickie, Critter now, because his sister told me, yeah, he doesn't, his name is, he doesn't go by Dickie anymore. His name's Critter. Uh, they, the judge looks at his folder and he realizes just who this guy is. You know, he got a he had a bronze. Like there, so there, like, there's the con- the Congressional Medal of Honor, and then there's a silver star, and then the bronze star. So he had a silver star and a bronze star. Wow! For valor under combat. Is, and that's just given from like the commander for just like having a lot of heart and like just doing a bunch of. Mm, no, there. These are more serious life on the line. Oh, Lord. Serious stuff. So. Uh, and his, I obviously know a lot about <laughs> war, war so, so just for example, one of them, um, I can't remember them. I actually have copies of them in the folder. Uh, one of them, he, well, well for, so anyway, well, first of all, we'll get into that later. But all I know is that his sister says once they bust his shop, the, first of all, the judge throws everything out. Word. But the critter then says he's had enough. He didn't want any more to do with this. He tried to do the right thing. He tried to be straight and play it by the rules. But now it's the law that's messing with him when this is what he fought for. Right. This is what he killed communists for yeah. and killed a lot of communists. So now he's had it and he's out of Miami. Right. So that's when he takes off to Gainesville. So I asked his sister, I said, can, can I go? Would you mind if I just went in his bedroom, yeah. you know? Because I spent a lot of time in his yeah, house, you know, as a kid, you know? So I go in, and when I walk in, his mom, Clara, she's, I can see she's got the ribbons on the, you know, she's got all his, you know, his memorabilia on the wall. And there are these, there's these photographs that one of them in particular, it's like out in a jungle, like in, a, in an LZ, a landing zone in a clearing where there's like these hooches, and it shows about six guys. They've got berets on, and they're, I mean, you can, you know, they've got their fatigues are rolled up, and it looks like Critter is on the end, and they're being decorated. But, you know, the guys, you know, you can see like pinning something on his shirt, yeah. but you can tell this is not. A happy, a happy occasion. I mean, those guys are standing there, and you can see the muscles are bulging in their neck, and yeah. you can see that it, it's critter. So now, you know, I'm thinking, boy, boy, he saw a lot different experiences than <laughs> me being on the ski patrol. Yeah, same you war, know, just different. Same war, different place. Yeah. 
And uh, so anyway, so that, you know, that's real nice. And then I leave and I go back to she my said, sister's. Did you get a number or something? Or is she just kind of Oh, so I asked him. I, if, if, she said, well, if you want to get in touch with him, she said, first of all, he doesn't have, there's, he doesn't have a phone. You have to go to Gainesville. She gave me a street where there was an apartment where these bikers lived. She said, go to this apartment. Tell them that you want, you want to meet with Critter. And they'll tell you how to get out That's to, crazy. to hog heaven. So I, um, like some true detective shit. <laughs> yeah. So I go, you know, my, I go back with your grandmother and my sister back to Eagle Lake and, you know, I finish out my visit with them. It's time for me to go. Cause I've got a, about eight or nine days before I have to be now back up to New York state to the, the teacher's conference yeah. or the teacher's outdoor ed workshop. And I get in my van and I take off and I'm driving on interstate 75 you know, coming, getting, you know, heading toward Gainesville. And then it, for some reason, I start thinking about Critter and realizing, oh, Gainesville, this is where Critter lives. Hey, I'm not on the clock. Let's you make know, a quick I still got, stop. I've got eight or nine days. This is why I gave up the nine to five. Yeah. You know, I'm going to look this guy up. So I get off the interstate. I follow, you know, I, I find the paper where I wrote down the directions. I get to this, you know, and I get to this little suburban neighborhood, kind of older Gainesville neighborhood. There's the duplex, you know, the big choppers are outside. And I'm thinking, well, hey, you know, what all I can do is knock and see what happens. So I walk up to the, I park, get out of my van, walk up to the door and knock. And of course, a big old biker guy opens up the door. Like, what do you want? You know, and I, you know, I, I look like a sixth grade middle school yeah. teacher and I just right away, you know, drop the name. I said, I'm just an old boyhood friend from of Critter. His sister told me you could tell me how I could find him. And he goes, oh, come on in. So he invites me in, tells me how to get to Hog Heaven. I drive out to this pretty different place. <laughs> yeah, it's like... What's it's, it like when you first show up? Like, what's your first impression? Well, first to get there, you, there was this dirt... It was a like a, a, a two-lane blacktop back through these beautiful pine forests of Florida, about 16 miles out of Gainesville. And then there's a turnoff, like a little dirt track, and there's this old, like, Pentecostal uh, African-American kind of church back in there that and then but that's where they said you got to go to the, back in there but go around behind the church and you're going to see there's like a there's a, a dirt track that you can follow just follow it you know so i you know i drive around in my van and, and i get back and then i i know you know i drive back and it's under all under the canopy of these this pine forest so it's cool and shaded but where the road ends it's like, holy mackerel. It was almost, I thought like I was in deliverance. <laughs> yes. You know, there's like these old body truck parts. There's a parachute up in the tree limbs. You might have been in deliverance. Somebody has built like a dwelling out of pallets that, I mean, but there are these hound puppies. This hound dog is right there and these puppies come running up once I stop the truck. And then I look around and once I get out of the truck, you know, the puppies are all barking at me coming around and, and there's little piglets running around <laughs> with them, you know, thinking it's a puppy, I guess. And, and I'm thinking, Ooh, I know I'm in the right place. Yeah. And then I was thinking, I am not so sure. I want to do I this. I really want to do this. But I'm thinking, Hey, you're a vet, you know, don't be a chicken yeah. shit. You're here. You know, I'm here. I'm in the right place. Looks like, you know, somebody's serious veteran war stuff between the big American flag hanging over the doorway and stuff. So I thought, well, what the heck? So, um, I, uh, 
I just, my van was equipped for sleeping and hanging out. Mm. So I just opened up the big side doors, you know, got you know something to drink and got my journal. Are and, people around? No, like, there's nobody around. Oh, okay. Cause I'm like, you just pulling up in journal and it yeah. might've been a little. No, there's, there's no, there's nobody around. Oh, so you, sh- so you show up and the place is deserted at the time, except for the piglets and the, the puppies. Oh, okay. So you figure they're just out. I'll give it a few hours. I'm just going to hang out. Somebody's going to come home eventually. Wow. It, it looked right. it, like it was had been lived in yeah. recently enough. Yeah, they were there. Okay, uh, cool. Just nobody was home. Okay, word. So I'm sitting there, and must an hour, maybe an hour and a half go by, but then I hear music that I hadn't heard before, but it's coming beyond me. And I thought, no, you don't sneak by anybody on a Harley. Yeah. So they didn't. They didn't come by me. There must be another way in, maybe. So I start now. It's just a dirt. Now it's just a dirt path, not a track like you can drive on. So I I walk back. I don't know, maybe thirty yards, and now there's a there's another kind of dwelling, but this one is very nicely constructed and it's got you know like pine poles and it's all screened because it's Florida. It's yeah. hot and mosquitoes and all screened in with a nice tin roof. And I can see a man and a woman behind the screen. And they don't, they don't, they're not expecting anybody. So they don't see me yet. And I just go, yo, hey, you know, they're probably maybe 30, 40 feet away. And they go, and then I hear this guy say, oh, yeah, come on over. We don't wear any clothes around here. But by the time I get there, they've already, they've got, they put T-shirts and paint, you know, cutoffs on. Yeah. So they invite me in. And so it's this, it's, so it's this biker whose name is the Polak and his girlfriend, his name is Marin. And, you know, I kind of explain who I am. And they say, yeah, you know, wild bear and critter, they've gone into town. Uh, they probably won't be back till late. But, you know, you're welcome to hang out here. And this hooch was where they hung out. So living on the property are Critter, who lived in the, like a camper on the back of a pickup truck. Mose and Marin lived in this maybe 12 by 12 enclosure. And then the other place that really was funky, that was Wild Bears. Oh, so it was, th- it was three... The three guys, three, guys. three bikers. Oh, so, but in one of the, the corner of this hooch, they've designed it so that they're like um, truck, a uh, couple... Uh, seats out of trucks with a tape, like a, um, a big wire spool turned on the side for a table. Oh, cool. And they've got a, you know, like Coleman, because there's no running water, no yeah. electricity or anything, but they've got it all set up for living. And uh, so anyway, they they said, well, we ought to have something to drink, so let's have a beer. So, I, hey, cool. And then, you know, they said, oh, well, well by you, we ought to have something to smoke. <laughs> so now, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm drink, smoking a lot more than I ever have, and, and, and it, the afternoon has gone on, it's gotten dark, and there's just kerosene lamps. So Mose and Marin, they've got a bed you know, little over in the corner, and I just—it's it's like an old truck seat that I'm—I just kind of lay over on the truck seat, and then I don't know, midnight, twelve thirty, one o'clock in the morning, I—I'm I awakened because I can hear the hum bum 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 bum. Those joints are loud. Here they come, and then they stop. I can hear them, you know, because I'm kind of awake by then, and I can hear them. They—I can hear that they all stop, and then I hear this voice say. Because I've got the canoe on top of my van, you know, with the New York State license <laughs> yeah. plate. That's the one you still, we still got, right? Yeah. 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 Same Grumman. <laughs> so I hear this voice, a boat, a boat from New York. <laughs> Who'd have a boat in New York? And I heard the other guys, yeah, because th- you know, everybody thinks New York City. Right? <laughs> yeah. So I hear all these other guys, yeah, a boat. Who, who's got a boat in New York? <laughs> and then I hear this, bam, bam, bam. 
this gunshots going off. And I'm thinking, holy shit, these idiots are shooting a hole through my canoe. You know, and what am I going to do? Run out and say, okay, boys, stop yeah. in the name of the law. So I thought, well, it's too late at this point. So I just sit there. So here they come, bum, 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 big motorcycles come in closer and they all shut off. And the doorway into this hooch was like a big blanket that they just put across. But um, so then the motorcycles are all shut off. And now these bikers are starting to come through this doorway with their old ladies. Mm. And, you know, they're all they all look like bikers. They got all the Levi stuff and the pins, the, the all the stuff, the vest, everything and the beards and the hair. And as they're coming in, they're all looking, seeing me sitting there, this guy who's a looks like a sixth grade language arts teacher, yeah. you know, I ain't no, Badass, I, yeah. I'm not, not a biker. I got a little bit of a beer, but not like these yeah. guys. And they don't have a clue who the hell I am. And of course I see, you know, I don't, you know, wild bear, this other, the really scraggly looking one comes through is wild bear, you know, how many guys is it? Three guys. They're like four or five. Four or five of them. They've all got their girl, their old ladies. Don't all got their girlfriend. No, mm. but the last one to come through the doorway. The last guy steps through the doorway and he looks up and he sees me and within seconds of that eye contact, he just looks up and spots me and he goes, Rick Rogers. And he comes over and of course now I'm in Fat City because this is Critter and I'm his, I'm his buddy, yeah, you know? Yeah. So he grows me a great big bear hug, you know? And then, of course, then, oh, now they really got to have a party. So, and you're just you know, waking up from having a party. And I'm just party. having a party, <laughs> and I'm just a sixth-grade school teacher. <laughs> so by the time I will saunter back to my van at 4.30 or 5 o'clock oh, so in the morning. you guys partying for a few hours. Oh, yeah. I mean, now, they're, they're, now they really had an excuse. Oh, wow. So Critter, you know... You know, it was just, you know, it was pretty amazing. What's those first few hours like when, when after you hug him and ever, and you're on people's good side, you guys are having some drinks, maybe something to smoke. What are those, are you guys swapping stories? You're keeping it pretty light? Or is it, is it just kind of a... Uh, well, considering the, my mental condition, <laughs> oh. I don't, you know, I don't remember. They went pretty I, quick. Uh, yeah. I, okay. I don't remember much of those conversations, right. but what I do remember is that... Like the next day, because this is August now in Florida, it's really hot. And so Critter and all the other guys are gone except Mose and Marin. I'm sorry, that was an Arkansas couple. <laughs> the Pollock yeah. and Marin, Wild Bear, Critter, and me. And so they and of course we get up, we don't even get up until like 10 o'clock or yeah. something like that. And right away, as soon as we get up, and somebody's got to roll one, and then they break another. It's like, holy moly, guys! Can we just get some breakfast first or something? <laughs> I'm used to going about six days in between. <laughs> so, anyway, they say, "Come on, we're going to go for a swim." So we walk back. They had cleared a trail back through the woods, maybe three quarters of a mile, that came to a trip the uh, like the headwaters of the Santa Fe River. One of the big rivers that cuts across northern Florida is the Santa Fe. This is almost like at the near the headwaters. So it's almost like a stream at this point. It's not a river, it's just a stream. But it's all under the canopy of this pine forest. It's maybe twenty feet wide. The water is just crystal clear, about three feet deep, just as cool as could be. 
And of course, we just walk back there and everybody just takes their clothes off and drops them on the ground, climbs in the water. Of course, me, I don't want to put my clothes on the ground, so I'm hanging them up in the tree branches. You know? <laughs> Good way to this guy. <laughs> so, so, uh, what's, sorry to interrupt, but just real quick, what's Critter look like at this point? Like when you he, see him again, is he like scars and tattoos? Uh, and... Well, not so much tattoos, but I noticed his teeth were in bad shape, uh, you know. But he was, so here's this kid. When we were boys growing up, he there were three of us, Dickie, Ricky, and Ronnie. He, he was always fearless. Whenever we went snake hunting, he always went first. Mm. He was always, he was built. He was a warrior. He was a born warrior. When all the, everybody else's boys, when you're growing out of your, you know, your boyhood fat and yeah. adolescence, he was already muscles. I mean, he was yeah. just, he was built to be a warrior. And so... Now, I mean, he's he's my height, so he's only like five six. He's barrel chested, and he's just built. Yeah, you know, I mean, he's just strong, and he's muscle. He's he's um, sinewy. Yeah, you know, there's no fat and flab on him. Interesting, but even, even um, at that point, it's crazy. He's still, yeah. you know, in such good shape and and everything. Yeah. Wow. So, um, so it's like the next day. Where he says, "Come on, let's let's go back," and it's just me and him. Okay, cool. And we go back, and this is when we, you know, we get back there and we slip down in the water where you're, you know, we're just sitting there with the water up about chest high, and you could reach down into the shells on the bottom and pick the, you know, this is this water is bubbling right up out of the earth, where you could have these like shells in your hand from the ancient Florida when it was just a coral bed and there'd be shark's teeth. You could find a <laughs> shark's teeth. I mean, it's just this really neat spot to be, you know? And that's when he kind of starts opening up to me, yeah. you know, telling me that, you know, here he is. He, um, he quits high school because it wasn't his thing. He liked wrestling. You know, he was a good wrestling yeah. wrestler, but school wasn't his thing. He quits high school, gets his mom to sign the papers. He joins the army when he's 17 or 18 or whatever. I think he might have lied. I don't know. <coughs> gets to Vietnam. And um, eventually, because he liked being in outdoors, he liked being in the jungles, he eventually gets to a point where they move him. Like He becomes like a ranger. Ah. And so now, <coughs> excuse me, instead of, instead of being with U.S. Army units, he's actually moving with um, Vietnamese rangers. Uh, he's got an interpreter. Oh, wow. He's really adept at using the electronic navigation stuff at the time. And he's actually traveling with small groups of Vietnamese rangers that are crossing the border into Cambodia illegally because we were allies with Cambodia. So it was against international law for the U.S. to send U.S. soldiers into oh, Cambodia. Wow. So he's on like some special secret mission type Yeah, shit. he wore no insignia. So you if know, they caught him... If they, they caught him, he, could, oh, look, he could have been French. He could yeah. be Dutch. He could be German. You know, white skin yeah. European guy, and so and that's what he and that's what he did. And, and what they do, they just went on behind. <coughs> well, it was like search and destroy. So they'd go in, go in find out what was going on, if the opportunity arose, and they could take advantage of it and destroy whoever they came across, and then do it. So it was it was kind of like targeted um, 
I don't want to say assassinations, but kind of targeted personal missions. Sort of, oh, that's right. intense. And that's where he got his, that's where he gets the commendations for valor. Mm. Twice. Once they went into a village, and uh, I can't remember what happened, but um, they're, they're outgunned, and he knows that... Um, that the only way that they're going to get out of there is to, they've got to have air support. So he, like, he, I don't know, he jumps up and he takes off and he climbs up something where he can get an antenna. You know, this is a firefight going on. And um, so he can get an antenna up to call in air support. And then, you know, he gets down and the air support comes in and it, you know, gives them a chance to get out alive. That's insane. I couldn't imagine being in situations that intense in a foreign land and with people that don't even speak my language with an interpreter. You know, I'm like nervous about getting like schmoozed by a taxi driver. You know what I mean? <laughs> like over abroad, like the idea of being in situations where it's life or death and the guys that you are with might not even speak your language. That dude got hurt. Uh, yeah. yeah. And obviously a pretty high degree of trust. Yeah. And faith in each other. Yeah. And then the other time, the one that actually cost him so that he he ha, you know he gets leaves, is again they're in some they get in a firefight and they're they're gonna they're gonna be outgunned, so he tells he tells everybody else to get get out and move get away and he calls in an airstrike, but because he's the forward observer with calling in the airstrike. When the F-16s come in, or whatever they are, when they unleash their their bombs or whatever, um, he's so close that shrapnel uh. from one of the bombs severs the tendons in his right hand, so that he can't pull a trigger. Damn. And that's what eventually leads to him getting out. Wow. So you know, he you know he he doesn't he doesn't talk he doesn't really talk so much about that, but he does tell me that. You know that he uh, he there was no way he was going to stay in under those circumstances if he couldn't fight. I mean yeah. that's that's what he was there for. Right. I mean he was there to kill communists. You know to save America. You know to fight for democracy, and that's why he was there, and that's what he did, and he did it well. And you know I got the impression he probably up close. Yeah. You know kind of killed a lot of guys yeah. so it's then he tells me that when he comes back that once uh you know he kind of um because of his history somehow or another the vietnam he he must have i know his mother told me later <coughs> excuse me that um that he um you know, he would started having nightmares, so he oh. must have started having the pill PTSD. Yeah. Thing. So he, at this point, when he's telling you this, is his demeanor? Um, does he tell you any of that, or he just sort of, he just kind of gives you the the broad strokes? Broad strokes, but pretty much what he tells me is that when he comes back, when they bust his shop and they destroy his shop. And now he's been hanging out with Vietnam veterans against the war. They're encouraging him to go and speak mm. to groups like the University of Miami because he's got a he's got the credibility. And now he's starting to internalize the fact that everything that he gave that he thought he was doing in the cause of freedom and justice and fighting for his country 
is just bullshit, mm. especially when they destroy his bike shop, and that's like the last straw, and that's when he's that's when he just leaves town. Mm. But by then now, there's now he, he, you know, to a certain extent, it shatters all his moral grounding. Yeah. So now there's no. There are no good guys anymore. Yeah, you know, so there's no like, good I'm, guys I'm anymore, except his biker buddies. Right. You know, and and, and that's all vets? Uh, a lot of them. Right. And like Wild Bear, yeah, he yeah. was a Marine on the DMZ, uh, you know, up in the demilitarized zone. Uh, I feel like that's one of those things that do you only get it if you've been through it. Probably, right. You know? And and that's also when he starts leaning toward the criminal element. Right. You know, he's uh, right. He's got. He's a gutsy guy. He's fearless. He's familiar with guns. He not, he knows how to navigate. It doesn't take long for some guys to approach him to say, "Hey, we could use somebody like you on these boats we have that are going to sail up between Cuba and Haiti to go to Jamaica to bring back a product that could be really worth your while." Uh, so he puts his skills to use and he starts putting it because now there's no right or wrong. Right. You know, it's, you know, how can you yeah. say that these guys are doing something wrong when the politicians in Washington, the white guys, have gotten so many people killed, so many young boys slaughtered in Vietnam. And so that's when he he just says, hey, this, you know, this, I'm going to do what I want to do. Yeah. Do use my skills right. it's all, to, it's make, all, to make money, you know, yeah. to support himself, to buy that land out in uh, Gainesville and um, just live the way he wants to live. Right. And that's what he's actually doing when I... When you bump into him. him. All right, well, people, hold that thought. The uh, the mother unit just came home, so we're on we're on dinner duty. But that's a little a little snippet. Thank you again for tuning in. You'll get you'll get more next time around. Pops again, always a pleasure. Oh, you're welcome, Keith. Thank, thank you, you. Uh, dude. Yo, stay tuned. I know y'all are you know, <laughs> waiting for the next one. Now we're gonna do the cliffhanger. All right, check you in a minute. Peace.